Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Adil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into the latest episode, The Death of Cleopatra. Listeners are advised, this episode deals with themes of suicide and self-harm. It's August 30 BC and 39-year-old Cleopatra, who's ruled Egypt for more than 20 years, shuts herself away in her mausoleum near Alexandria with two maidservants. She sends a note to Octavian, who'd invaded Egypt that spring, asking to be buried at Mark Antony's side. According to ancient chronicler Plutarch, Cleopatra had been placed under guard to prevent her taking her own life, so Octavian immediately sends men to investigate. They break down the door, but they're too late. Inside is the lifeless body of Cleopatra, with one of her handmaidens dying at her feet and the other taking her last breaths as she adjusts her queen's diadem. It's one of the most famous incidents in history, but what's the real story behind the demise of Egypt's last Ptolemaic ruler? I speak with Roman historian, archaeologist and lecturer at the University of Glasgow, Dr Jane Draycott. Jane, I'm so, so pleased to have you on the podcast today. We're going to look at, I reckon, the most famous female in history. I would agree with that, yes. <laughs> good, good. Well, there we go. That's that's fine. The two of us have said it, so it must be true. I also think, actually, maybe the, the most famous ancient locked room mystery uh, as well. Oh, you see, that's perfect for this, isn't it? But first of all, before we get on to the infamous event of her demise. Could you set the scene for listeners? Right, so Egypt was at this point in time, so the, the, the middle of the first century BCE, it was the last remaining successor kingdom that is part of Alexander the Great's uh, huge empire. When he died, it was uh, split up and divided up amongst his generals. And Gradually, these these kingdoms had, had fallen one by one to each other, to Rome, and until finally only Egypt was left. But Egypt was, in in many respects, the, the, the sort of prime prime piece of, of real estate. I think out of out of Alexander's uh, empire, it was uh, incredibly agriculturally fertile, which of course was very important in this period. You know, the, the inundation of the Nile meant that the, the region produced sometimes multiple harvests per year, which meant that the people were very well fed and well, that, that gave the, the, uh, the Ptolemies, the dynasty that was controlling Egypt in the, in the wake of Alexander's death, that gave them a lot, of, a lot of power and a lot of influence. It also had mines in the deserts, precious metals, minerals, it had trade networks with India and with the further south into Africa. So it had a lot of luxury goods coming through it as well. It was also very well situated because, of course, it was part of Africa, but facing into the Mediterranean and also looking, looking east as well. So it, it was sort of at a, a kind of crossroads between east and west and north and south. OK, and then within this land within this world we have a young woman who emerges as the most famous figure in um, history could you 
tell us about Cleopatra's rise to prominence? Yes, well, if you were going to take a look at the Ptolemaic family, you wouldn't necessarily expect Cleopatra to rise to prominence because she wasn't the eldest child and she was, of course, a girl. So her father, Ptolemy Twelfth, known as Aulates because he was apparently very keen on uh, playing the flute, um, <laughs> He was not a very popular king, and in fact he was, he was deposed uh, during his reign and the um, inhabitants of Alexandria, which was essentially the, the sort of capital city of Egypt, they deposed him, they, they kicked him out of the kingdom, and they replaced him with his oldest daughter, who was called Berenike, and this is where Rome starts to sort of get involved in Egypt, because Aulates went to Rome to try and get Roman support to uh, reclaim his kingdom and that involved him paying quite a lot of money to Rome as, as, as you know gifts slash bribes. He ended up going back to Egypt with Roman support, deposing Berenike in her turn, she was executed and that left essentially a power vacuum in, in a manner of speaking for he needed a partner, a ruling partner because traditionally the Ptolemies had always had a king and a queen. They had sort of joint rule, different aspects of rulership covered by the king, covered by the queen. So he essentially promoted Cleopatra, who was his second daughter, in, into that sort of vacant space. And for the last couple of years of, of his life, they they ruled together. And we, we see that in the archaeological record. We see Cleopatra acting as queen autonomously in this period. And then when Aulates died... We then have this situation where Cleopatra is the, is the eldest of the four remaining children. She has a younger sister, Arsinoe, and two younger brothers, also called Ptolemy, both of them. Ptolemy the 13th and Ptolemy the 14th. Helpfully. And, <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're, all, they're all Ptolemy. <laughs> they all have different numbers and sometimes different second names. But yes, it's, it, it's sort of, there, are, there are too many Ptolemies, really. But in, so in this particular, at this particular point in time, she then has... A dynastic marriage with her younger brother Ptolemy the Thirteenth, who is is about sort of ten years old. I mean, she's she's sort of um, in her late teens um, to twenty, and so we have this sort of marriage in name only between this brother and this sister. And the problem there is that while Cleopatra is the the elder partner, she has the experience, she has the authority. Ptolemy has advisors who are really not very keen on Cleopatra being the dominant partner. And, and so we end up with a civil war between, uh, nominally between Cleopatra and Ptolemy, but really between Cleopatra and Ptolemy's advisors. And Cleopatra is herself deposed and thrown out of Egypt. And that's when she needs help from Rome to reinstate her. So this is pretty, pretty dramatic stuff. And all before the age of, of 20 for her. What kind of character did she have? Surely these events would have shaped her personality in some way. Yes. I mean, I think it's fair to say, based on the uh, ancient literature, the descriptions that we have of her, that she was highly intelligent. She would have been highly educated because all of the Ptolemies were. They, they had the, the library and the Museum in Alexandria where scholars from all around the ancient Mediterranean came to undertake cutting-edge experimental study and research and so we've got references to her being very knowledgeable about medicine, cosmetics, poisons 
And some of these potentially are a little bit suspect in the sense that women are often accused of having knowledge of poison, knowledge of magic and witchcraft in antiquity as, as a way of sort of casting aspersions on their characters. But it does seem that Cleopatra herself was very well educated and very interested in a lot of these particular subjects. We know that she spoke a lot of different languages. She was apparently the first Ptolemy to bother to actually learn Egyptian so that she could speak to the Egyptian members of her population without the the need for an interpreter. And I think that, that also sort of gives us a sense of somebody who was a very hands-on ruler as well. The fact that she, she could speak to all of these different groups of people, not just in her kingdom, but around the ancient Mediterranean as well, without needing an interpreter, without necessarily handing over some of her autonomy to, to underlings. That's really interesting because that also shows how she seems to be quite canny in what it takes to make herself popular. Yes, I mean, the, the other thing that I think we need to bear in mind about her is that she seems to have had absolutely phenomenal people skills and personal charisma. So although the, the sort of, if you watch modern films, they, they always cast a very sort of beautiful, glamorous, sexy actress to, to play Cleopatra, to sort of demonstrate to the audience, this is how she was able to achieve what she was able to achieve, capture the hearts that she did. In reality, uh, our ancient sources, so Plutarch, for example, he's our, he's our best source for Cleopatra because he had connections with the, uh, the court at Alexandria, and so he got a sort of insider view of, of a lot of the goings-on there. He says that she wasn't so beautiful. What, what she was was very charismatic. She had a, a wonderful speaking voice, and she had the ability to give her full attention to people and to, to present herself to them in a way that was the most attractive to them specifically. So she changes her behaviour according to who she's talking to. to I suppose if we're, if, we're, if we're going to sort of put it slightly unkindly, she's very, she can manipulate people very easily. She knows what they want and, and she knows how to give it to them. Right, okay. I guess that kind of brings us on a little bit to how she interacted with Rome. I mean, could you tell us about the events that lead up to to her death, but also shine a light on that interaction with Rome and how that played into it? Yes, well, because of her father's debts to Rome, to various important Romans, Rome had a, a sort of financial interest in Egypt. And since Egypt was rather isolated at this at this point in time it was the last successor kingdom and it was surrounded by roman territory essentially cleopatra did have to make nice with rome and the romans and she is what we would call a client queen or an allied queen the roman republic liked to have on its borders essentially buffer zones of of kingdoms that were ruled by friendly rulers who would sort of provide a barrier between Rome and in in the east we we have Parthia that's Rome's uh, traditional enemy and in in Africa in sort of the once you get beyond the sort of coastal regions of Africa you you sort of have nomadic tribes that are thought to be fairly hostile so the these kingdoms provide a sort of a layer of protection so Egypt is is one of these and there's a certain amount of quid pro quo about it that 
in in exchange for Roman support for Cleopatra. I mean, this is this is the sort of the the upshot of her civil war with her brother is that she she manages to convince Julius Caesar to support her against her brother. And then she has this ongoing connection with Caesar and through Caesar, Rome. And in exchange for that support, that, that military support, because Caesar leaves his, some of his legions in Egypt to, to provide her with that military backup, she provides Rome with grain and with, with other resources. And so she has this, this alliance with Julius Caesar and with Rome, and subsequently she has a similar alliance with Mark Antony, and with Rome, providing him with support for his Parthian expedition, providing him with ships for his navy, providing him with money and other sorts of resources. And in exchange, he provides her with gifts of of territory so that she can expand her kingdom to its former glory, essentially. They were more than just alliances, weren't they, in terms of the personal story? So the connection between Julius Caesar and then Mark Antony was more intense than a, a political alliance, or so I would believe from watching Hollywood films. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, you, you, it's, it's very difficult to separate the sort of personal and the political in this, in this particular instance, because it's not unusual for Romans in these influential positions to have very close relationships with client kings and queens and members of their families. So in order to be a client king or a queen, you you essentially needed to have a a Roman sponsor who would would support you. And ideally you would choose wisely there because of course their enemies would become your enemies and their friends would become your friends. So you you have these, these sort of ongoing, very close relationships between Roman families and royal families that, that last through generations. And so in the case of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, that does become, so it would seem, a a romantic relationship in, in, in a manner of speaking. So Cleopatra has a child. She claims that that child is Caesar's child. She, she calls him Ptolemy Caesar. He's known as Caesarian, which is little Caesar. And although Julius Caesar never comes out and sort of openly says, yes, you know, he, he, is, he is my son because he's married to a Roman woman who hasn't, he, and he doesn't have any, any surviving Roman children at that point in time, he doesn't at the same time deny it. So it, his Caesarian for Julius Caesar is, is not particularly important because he can't be his Roman heir. But Caesarian for Cleopatra is extremely important because he is her co-ruler, he is her heir, and he is a very tangible link to Caesar and Rome. But in Rome itself, there are more insular politics at play. In 44 BC, on the 74th day of the Roman calendar, otherwise known as the Ides of March, senators who'd become increasingly frustrated by the amount of power held by Julius Caesar stab him to death. The consequences for Cleopatra are huge. Gone is her link with Rome. Coming up, we take the story to its tragic conclusion.
With Caesar dead, three men step in to fill the void. His great-nephew and adopted son Octavian, and generals Mark Antony and Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. But the rulership quickly disintegrates into factions, resulting in Mark Antony and Octavian being at war with one another. In 41 BC, Antony requests the company of Cleopatra in the city of Tarsus. They'd met when she was younger and the mistress of Caesar. According to sources, Cleopatra arrives in great pomp and spectacle, and it is from this point onwards that the pair form their infamous bond. Her relationship with Caesar has um, an initial period in Egypt, uh, and then she visits Rome to sort of continue to, to kind of shore up this, this alliance, whereas her relationship with Mark Antony lasts much longer and is, is something that's much more akin to an actual marriage. It's, you know, it, it lasts for a decade, they have three children together, he apparently in his will makes provisions for Cleopatra and her children, he's looking to make their three children kings and queens of eastern and african territories which is something that makes him very unpopular in rome mm, i can imagine and in the in their case i mean with 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 caesar there sort of seems to be a certain amount of transactional you know friends with benefits i suppose you might call it whereas with with antony it seems to be much more of a, an actual relationship so I, I think it's fair to say that they they were more than just sort of political partners they were they were romantic partners Going back to Hollywood films here, in my head, Mark Antony is Richard Burton. And when <laughs> when he dies, that's when um, Cleopatra starts to lose her grip on, on everything. Tell me the real story. How do we get to the point where Cleopatra dies seemingly at her own hand? Well, we have to actually go back a little bit further than that, really. In one sense, um, Cleopatra is sort of collateral damage in a civil war between Antony and another Roman, Octavian, who is Julius Caesar's nephew and adopted son. And the pair of them have been, since Caesar's death in, in 44 BCE, sort of all the way down to um, Antony and Cleopatra's deaths in 30 BCE, the pair of them, Octavian and Antony, have, have been essentially uh, battling for dominance and battling for control of Rome. And Antony started off in the, in the prime position. He was the senior, he was more experienced politically and militarily, uh, he had a lot more support. Octavian was, was young and, and um, unproven. But over the course of that sort of 14 years, the, the tables gradually turn. And we get to the point in 31 BCE where we have the Battle of Actium which is where Antony and Octavian have their sort of final showdown at Actium, just uh, off the coast of, of Greece. And the way that Octavian presents this whole thing is he's at war with Cleopatra and Egypt because civil war between Romans is, is not, not really to his credit. So the way that it's presented is that uh, Cleopatra has essentially bewitched Antony and, and taken him away from Rome and made him strange and foreign and un-Roman. And so we have this sort of situation. They, they have the battle. It's a, it's a fairly inconclusive, scrappy battle that Octavian wins, but it's not really to his credit. And then we have another year until um, 30 BCE when Octavian takes his troops to Egypt and we sort of have this final showdown situation. 
And between those two points, the Battle of Actium and the fall of Alexandria, we have a lot of diplomacy going on, letters going back and forth between Octavian and Antony, between Octavian and Cleopatra. And what Cleopatra's trying to do is she's trying to preserve her kingdom for herself, her children. At this point, Antony is, is no longer particularly useful to her. He's, he's, uh, he's, lost his, he's lost his power, he's lost his reputation. He has um, had a bit of a breakdown and isolated himself from everybody living in a sort of hermitage on the coast in Alexandria. And she's worried about her son Caesarian, her three children uh, with Antony, and the survival of her kingdom. So she's sort of thinking quite strategically and, and diplomatically and, and trying to come to an arrangement with Octavian that will ensure the survival of her children, hopefully the survival of her, but first and foremost, the survival of her children and her dynasty and her kingdom. So this is how we sort of get to this situation where Octavian is, is at the gates of Alexandria. Antony has lost all of his support and that's the point at which he decides that he needs to take his own life because for the Romans that is not it's not a shameful thing to do it's not a negative thing to do it's it's essentially the way that you can regain your prestige and wipe the slate clean essentially kind of falling on his own sword type thing quite literally so Cleopatra sort of helps him in this respect apparently she she sends someone to tell him that she has taken her own life and to sort of encourage him to to uh, take his, because he is really a liability at this point. And in, in an attempt to sort of curry favour with Octavian, Octavian wants Antony out of the way. So Antony attempts to take his own life, makes a bit of a hash of it, and so essentially very badly wounded, bleeding to death, he is taken to Cleopatra's mausoleum. Cleopatra is inside the mausoleum with all of her treasure. Antony is sort of hoisted up through the window in a, in a sort of very kind of farcical, sad spectacle. And then in the mausoleum, he dies in her arms. It's very sad, actually, isn't it? It, it is. It is very sad. And this, this is where we see in the literature that she, she on the one hand, she, she was sort of very calculating and, and he had outlived his, his usefulness to her. On the other, they had spent 10 years together. They had three children. They had these, uh, these grand plans for their eastern empire and she's she is very sad she you know she she cries she mourns yes it's a very 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 dramatic very emotional scene so from from what you're saying i'm thinking that her demise is more as you said strategic rather than a reaction to the death of mark antony then yes what we see with client kings and queens and and kings and queens who who aren't um clients of rome but but sort of come up against the roman empire is it's quite common for them to prefer to die rather than give up rather than um be defeated so there is a precedent for enemies of rome so mithridates uh, of pontus for example in in the in the sort of the previous couple of decades had a long-standing war with Rome and had had many victories over Rome but when he was finally defeated he preferred to take his own life rather than be captured by Rome and um, put on display in a triumph and then potentially executed for the entertainment of the Roman crowds and Cleopatra is aware of this precedent she is she is aware that once captured by Rome 
things are probably not going to go very well for her. So she tries to take her own life. When when the Romans apprehend her, she stabs herself in the chest, for example, and they, they manage to sort of disarm her and patch her up. Then when she's imprisoned in, in uh, Alexandria, she tries to starve herself and uh, goes on a hunger, hunger strike, and she's only persuaded to eat by Octavian threatening her children. So she is quite determined that she is not going to be a Roman prisoner and she is not going to be publicly humiliated by being dragged through the streets of Roman chains and then either publicly executed or possibly left to live out her days in some kind of obscure role somewhere. Um, it, 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 she might have been given, given sort of sanctuary in a temple and, and uh, forced to sort of spend the, the, the remainder of her life um, working as a, as a temple cleaner or a priestess or something like that, as had happened to her sister. So she, she is, is very determined that this is not going to happen. And there is also, I guess, an element of, of self-preservation. Well, not self-preservation, but preservation of her children and her dynasty as well. She is thinking that perhaps she, if with her out of the way, her children can rule Egypt instead, and that will preserve Egypt as an independent kingdom, preserve the Ptolemaic dynasty. Could you take us to the incident now? Could you describe what happens in this locked room mystery, as you put it before? Well, that, that is the thing. I can't exactly describe what happens because none of the ancient sources do, in fact, agree specifically on what happens. We, we have the popular version, but ultimately we don't really know. So what we do know is that Octavian essentially strings her along. Uh, he tells her that you know he, he has no intention of, of harming her, harming her children, because he wants to take her back. To, he wants to keep her you know quiet and, and amenable, and then take her back to Rome. When she finds out that this is going to happen, that's when she decides no, not having it. So she asks if she can go to her mausoleum and pour libations and essentially honour Antony, who who was dead by this time and was was sort of um, in, interred in her mausoleum. So she goes there with her handmaidens and she does this. And then at some point during this, this sort of episode, she takes her, her own life and her handmaidens take their own lives as well. And she sends Octavian a letter telling him that she's going to do this. And, and so he arrives too late really to do anything about it. Cleopatra is dead her handmaidens are dying. One of them is apparently straightening Cleopatra's crown and sort of laying her out nicely. And, and uh, because this is the thing, she, she, has, she has made sure to, to have a bath and, and to anoint herself and, and dress herself in, in her finest regalia. So it's, it's very much, it's a very planned scene. She, she is creating uh, a tableau, if you will. And so there is this issue of, well, how did she do this, you know? And we get various suggestions in the ancient literature. People suggest she poisoned herself with a snake, or she poisoned herself with some kind of ointment, or she poisoned herself with some kind of hairpin. And the argument that seems to gather steam is that she used some kind of snake, probably an asp, and it may have been transported in a, in a basket of figs, so hidden, hidden away. And this, this sort of, this takes on a life of its own. It seems that when Octavian did have his triumph, and on the 
third and final day of his triumph, he celebrated Egypt and he celebrated his victory over Cleopatra. He displayed an effigy of Cleopatra and it, it had a snake somewhere on it. We have an, an eyewitness account of this triumph and, and so this leads people to assume that this, this is Cleopatra at the moment of her death, you know, with, with a snake being, being bitten by a snake. But of course, there are problems with this because it's not just her that's dead, it's her and her two handmaidens, and a snake can't kill three of them. Well, it's a big, it's a big job. It's a big job for one snake, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so do we have multiple snakes? I mean, some of the sources talk about the possibility of multiple snakes. And yes, I mean, it, may, it makes a sort of a nice dramatic scenario there and, and there is also the snake is is quite a, a sort of sacred egyptian royal symbol you have the uraeus in the crown it has certain sacred connotations as well so it, it seems like it's a it's a nice suitably symbolic method of yeah. death but but yes i mean it's it's nobody knows for certain and, and and even years after her death people were debating it and and ancient writers were saying well this is one explanation this is another explanation nobody really knows but of course in in films and arts and and other recreations that is the that is the one that that has has uh, caught the imagination well it, it certainly has but she's caught the imagination um of people over the centuries in so many different ways but i just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the legacy of cleopatra it's interesting actually because i think she has a couple of different legacies and it really depends on what you're looking for because on the one hand the Roman view of Cleopatra is very negative. It's it's all of the sort of negative female stereotypes of, of the, the very calculating, manipulative woman who uses her sexuality to advance her own interests and turns you know, men in, into these uh, subservient creatures, which is a complete uh, inversion of, the, of what the natural order of things is meant to be. And of course, that's very very sexist in in a lot of ways quite racist as well because she's she's sort of presented as this this exotic foreigner and and, and it, she's a victim of, of orientalizing particularly in art from the sort of you know, 18th 19th centuries she she is depicted with you know leopard skins and and half naked and in a very provocative way so that that's one way to look at her impact and legacy and it's it's uh, perhaps it is the the sort of prevailing popular view of her another way is to look at her as actually a very clever strategic experienced politician who was doing her best in very trying circumstances she was a queen regnant in an ancient society or, or a series of ancient societies who really didn't put much stock in women you know she she was having to operate as uh, a female ruler in a in a sort of patriarchal society that was not inclined to take her seriously as a politician as a general uh, as even a, a religious leader so i think the fact that she did manage to rule her kingdom fairly um unhindered for several decades and she did manage to have alliances with powerful individuals and powerful neighbouring kingdoms is to her credit. Jane, thank you so much for this. It's been um, so interesting and I feel like 
I know an awful lot more about the the way that ancient Egypt worked and the marriages and things which from an outside point of view are quite shocking you know marriages to brothers and fathers and all the rest of it but actually it, it makes a lot more sense through listening to your story of it all so thank you for that it's been a pleasure. Oh thank you for having me it's it's been a pleasure for me as well. To this day, one of the greatest archaeological mysteries is the location of the final resting place of Cleopatra and Mark Antony. There have been many leads over the years, but the tomb remains elusive. Perhaps that's as it should be.